So today's Bible reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, up to chapter 5, verse 10. That's on page 1865 in your Bible. Jesus, the great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weaknesses. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes dishonor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hello again. Uh, if you do have your Bibles handy, that would be a really helpful thing to, um, to have near to be op- able to open up. So, um, yeah, I think there's Bibles aplenty floating around the place. Um, but as, as Jonathan said, we're jumping back into uh, a series on Hebrews, looking at uh, the supremacy of Jesus, about how Jesus is better than absolutely anything that this world has to offer to us. Uh, and last, last time we were looking at Hebrews, we looked at the first part of the reading we had this morning, which was Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Uh, you might remember uh, I shared the story of how my friend Davo had gone to my parents on behalf of my brother and I. Uh, he'd convinced them that it was okay for us to enjoy something that up until that point had been denied us, uh, being watching The Simpsons. Uh, we never thought in a million years it would work, but Davo came through for us. He acted on our behalf for our benefit by going to our parents for us, and it worked. Right? We, we were reminded last time we were in Hebrews that Jesus has gone before God on our behalf. And the line to remember from Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16 was this. Uh, Jesus is the great high priest we need, uh, meaning he's the one who can go before God on our behalf. Jesus is the great high priest we need. So let us hold firmly to the faith we profess that Jesus is the one we need to save us from sin and let us have confidence to approach God in our great need. Uh, This morning in in chapter 5 verse 1 to 10, uh, it elaborates on what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. It elaborates on why we can have this great confidence in him. And if you have a leaflet in front of you, you'll, you'll see an outline there. See, the author of Hebrews in these verses shows us that Jesus is firstly an authentic high priest 
Uh, but secondly, Jesus is a high priest that excels beyond all other high priests. And thirdly, uh, he shows us that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. It's quite a simple line to remember this morning, but it's such an important one. Uh, we have confidence to approach God only through Jesus, the source of eternal salvation. We have confidence to approach God only through Jesus, the source of eternal salvation. Now, there was a bit of a trend a few years ago where people would try to get into different festivals and shows and in buildings without needing to pay to get in there or needing to be invited. Now, the theory went like this. I don't know if you've seen or heard of this, uh, but, but the theory went like this. If you're wearing a high-vis shirt and a hard hat, uh, you can get in just about anywhere you like. A high-vis shirt and a hard hat, you can get in anywhere you like. Has anyone ever tried this before? No one's ever tried it? All right, it's probably a good thing. But there's something about having a high-vis shirt on and a hard hat that makes it look like you're actually going where you belong. Like wherever you are, you're, you're there with a purpose. So you can just walk through uh, the door to any building with a high-vis shirt on and people think he's, he's here with a purpose. He knows why he's here. He's going to go and do something. You're there with a purpose. I was reading an article this week. The first line said this, a high-vis vest is your key to the world. Free visits to the zoo, to the movies, even free access to Coldplay. Oh. <laughs> the article relayed how its author had been able to get into a whole bunch of different shows and areas, all because of a high-vis vest that he was wearing. Now, anyone sitting here thinking this might be the way to get into Foo Fighters or Taylor Swift later on, <laughs> let me know how you go. Uh, but apparently a high-vis vest is, is your key to the world. The question that's raised for us in Hebrews, though, is this. It, it's what is the, the key to getting in with God? See, Hebrews chapter 1 highlights two things, among many others. The first thing it highlights is that, that, that this world is actually perishing. It, it's fading. This world is not eternal. Uh, and secondly, that even though the world is perishing, God will not perish. God is eternal. And we read this in Hebrews 1, verse 10 to 12. We read this, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. See, the world around us is perishing, but God remains the same. So the nature of sin is that it is, it is destructive, is that it affects everything around us, including us. Uh, but we aren't the passive receivers of the perishing world around us. Uh, we're actually active participants in what went wrong in the first place. I'm saying to God that we'd prefer to be the ones who decide what's right and what's wrong, that we should decide whether God gets a say in the world that he created or not. See, we rebel against his rightful place as God in our lives. Um, and so it's not that the world around us is perishing, it's that we are perishing along with it too. And not just perishing in the way that we will fade into non-existence without a care. Uh, instead, we read in Hebrews 9.27 that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. There's no redos. We live once, we die once, and after that we stand before God to give an account for how we have lived. And he decides whether we enter into his eternal kingdom or if we are locked outside forever, bearing the consequences of our rejection of him. And the problem is we all deserve to be locked out forever. It's a pretty, pretty heavy thing, first thing hearing on a Sunday morning, but it's the reality. And we can't beat around it or ignore it. So what's the key to being, to being right with God, to being in with God? 
Well, it's the key to being in his eternal kingdom. Well, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10 helps us see it's not a high-vis shirt. You can't sneak in. Instead, it helps us see that we have confidence to approach God only through Jesus, the source of eternal salvation, and he is our only hope in the life to come. Point one, your outline says, Jesus, the authentic high priest. Uh, one of the things the author of Hebrews is really eager to do throughout the book of Hebrews, as we've, as we've said already, is to highlight why Jesus is supreme, why Jesus is better than anything that has come before, that's, that's presently here or that will come in the future. Uh, Jesus is better. And for the readers of this letter, the author wants to remind them in Hebrews 5, 1 to 10, that Jesus provides the confidence they need to come before God. No other person can do that. The original readers would have known that in the Old Testament, uh, it was impossible for God to dwell in the midst of his people because of sin. If God dwelt in the midst of the Israelites, he would want to just destroy them because he's a God of justice. He can't dwell near sin and imperfection. We read this in Exodus 33 after the Israelites have turned from God to worship a man made golden calf. Uh, God says in verse 5 of Exodus 33, he says to, uh, to Moses to tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. See, God, God will not dwell near sinful people. He's a holy God, he's a God of justice, and will judge those who are guilty of sin, and there's no escaping it. And that's good. See, that, that means that God sees injustice, that God wants to deal with it. Actually, one of the great promises of the Bible is that one day God will bring ultimate justice and perfect justice but in the bible we see that god is also a god of perfect mercy see god made it possible for the israelites to be near him so that he could bless them so that they could dwell in relationship with god with god in their midst and they could do this without god totally destroying them and the way it was made possible was through sacrifice the high priests would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the Israelites and instead of God's anger and judgment being poured out on them like they deserve, his anger would be turned aside as another life was given in their place. This would take place in something called the tabernacle, where God's presence dwelt among the Israelites wherever they encamped. And the high priest once a year would enter into the tabernacle to make this sacrifice before God on behalf of the people. The Hebrews 5 verse 1 says, that every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. See, that's the role of a high priest. And for those reading this letter, in their minds, a priest not only had a specific role, but needed to fit certain criteria that God had put in place. See, they knew they needed an authentic high priest to go before God on their behalf. They needed the real deal. And that's what the author of Hebrews makes plain in these first five verses. Jesus is the real deal. We read firstly that in order for a high priest to be the real deal, he needed to be selected from among the people and appointed by God. That's what we read in verse 4. No one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest is selected from among the people chosen by God. We read in Hebrews 5 verse 5, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father, and he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
Now we'll get to Melchizedek soon, but, but see here that Jesus is compared to a high priest and that he was chosen from among the people and appointed high priest by God, just like their forefather Aaron was in the Old Testament. See, Jesus being, is being held up to and compared with the high priests of old, and the author of Hebrews is saying, look, he's gone through the same process. See, he's the real deal. He's not a fake. But there's another uh, very important marker of a high priest, and it's in verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This tells us a lot about the character of God, that he would seek to install those who can deal gently with sinful people, to help them come back to relationship with God. See, we have a God who doesn't withhold grace, but wants us to come to him in our weakness. Jesus is not a high priest who seeks to withhold his sacrifice from some because he is displeased with them. He's a high priest who deals gently with them. He deals gently with you. See, how many times have you come before Jesus thinking, "Uh, surely he can't forgive me this time. I keep doing this same thing. I'm trying, but I keep messing up in the same way. Jesus understands the struggle to resist temptation. Remember, he knows even more than you how hard temptation is. He was tempted right up to the point of death on the cross to turn against his father. See, he gets it. And we read here that the role of a high priest isn't to withhold offering sacrifices because he's annoyed at the ignorance or the weakness of those who need it, but it's to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are, who are going astray. Right? It's a picture of a loving and a guiding hand coming alongside you and steering you back toward the grace of God. He deals gently with you. And we saw this in Jesus' life, didn't we, in the Gospels. We see his gentleness and his compassion and his kindness and his love for people going astray. When he looks out at the great crowd of people who, who have followed him when he's trying to retreat to a quiet place with his disciples because he needs some rest, he needs some, um, some R&R, uh, Jesus doesn't get angry at those people and annoyed because they wouldn't leave him alone. Instead, uh, we read in Mark six thirty four that when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, uh, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And after that, later on, he, he feeds them. It's the kind of person that Jesus is. See, it was a requirement of a high priest that were chosen by God to represent people before him, to offer sacrifices and to be able to deal gently with people in their weaknesses. See, Jesus, the author of Hebrews, is saying is all of those things. See, he's, he's the real deal. But it's not just that Jesus is the real deal. The author of Hebrews wants to point out that Jesus is not just any high priest. He is the high priest that excels beyond all others. That's point two. There are two different Old Testament verses that appear in chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. One of those is from Psalm chapter 2, the other from Psalm 110. We've read them already, but but let me read them again. Um, The first is from Psalm 2, and we find it in Hebrews 5, verse 5. We read, You are my son. Today I have become your father. The second is from Psalm 110, and it's in verse 6. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Now, we've seen already that God has chosen Jesus to be a priest, and for that reason, he's an authentic priest. Uh, But what's going on here? Well, firstly, we're seeing that Jesus is divine. He is God's own son. And we're seeing that he is a different kind of high priest, a better high priest, 
uh, an eternal high priest, one that is independent from the Old Testament high priests that have come before. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is both uh, priest and king. He's both priest and king, and not just any king, but God's chosen king who reigns over all things. See, Psalm 2 is a psalm that speaks about rebellion against God. It speaks of nations conspiring against God and against his anointed one, his Messiah, his promised eternal king. In the psalm, we read about how God warns the nations to submit to the rule of his chosen king, to cease their rebellion, because God has declared his commitment to his chosen king. You are my son, today I have become your father. He is the king to bow the knee to. And in the same way, in Psalm 110, God says to his promised king, uh, in verse 1, to to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then in verse 4 of Psalm 110, we read that other quote. uh, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, not only is he king forever, but he is priest forever. Now, Melchizedek is an Old Testament figure that appears in Genesis 14. He's referred to as both a priest to God and also a king, a king of Salem. We'll get to dig a lot into who he is in Hebrews chapter 7 and why this is so significant that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But but here in Hebrews 5, what is being highlighted for us is that Jesus is a priest that excels, excels beyond any other priest because he's God's son, the eternal king of God's people and the eternal priest of God's people. See, we're seeing that Jesus excels. A high priest who exists in his office as high priest for eternity. That means that there's not another one coming. See, Jesus is it. Just imagine that you're you're witnessing a massive fire that's getting way out of control. And you call triple zero and you're waiting for a while. And you hear sirens in the distance and you think, oh, finally, help has arrived. Then a fire engine rocks up. Someone gets out, they run over to the fire, and you're thinking, yes, there's relief. Uh, But when they get there, you start thinking, like, where's all the water they need to put out the fire? How are they going to do it? And you look and see, and they're pulling a little water pistol out of their pocket, and they start squeezing the trigger at the fire that's raging around them. Right, not much is going to happen. Right, what's needed is the real deal to come and fight it. Hoses, access to water, people who actually know what they're doing. You need the real deal. You need real firefighters. Now, but imagine that that fire is just, it's way out of control. The firefighters have no hope of dealing with it. All they can do is just point their hoses at the fire and cross their fingers and hope that it will die down eventually. What we're reading in Hebrews chapter 5 is that in Jesus, we don't just have someone rocking up with a fire hose. In Jesus, we have someone who rocks up with something like Niagara Falls. Because point three, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. The author of Hebrews has been focusing on Jesus' divinity in the previous verses, that that he is God, that he is the divine eternal high priest and the divine and eternal king who reigns over everything. But in verses seven to ten, the author of Hebrews comes back to highlighting his humanity. He is a king and a high priest. He was fully human, fully God. But we read that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, 
and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Um, to hear that what's on view, what the author of Hebrews is talking about, uh, is Jesus' great distress at Gethsemane and on the cross. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to his Father. See, Jesus really did suffer, really did die. The eternal King making himself low. He called out to God in his distress, fully entrusting himself to the will of his Father, who did save him from death by raising him to new life. The Father heard Jesus' cries, we read, because of his Son's reverent submission. Now, verse 3 talks about a high priest needing to make a sacrifice for their own sins before doing so for the people. Uh, but Jesus is the perfect high priest who was sinless, who being sinless was the perfect sacrifice for the sinful. As further expounded in verse 8, some though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience and that he was made perfect? Is the idea here that Jesus was moved from disobedience to obedience and moved from imperfection to perfection? Um, that's actually not what's being said at all. See, what the author of Hebrews is doing, I think, is saying that Jesus learnt the full cost of his obedience on the cross. He followed his Father's will to the end. His Father's will was that Jesus would give his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the world so that you and I might be saved from the wrath and judgment of God that we deserve. And Jesus willingly went to the cross to do that in obedience to the will of his Father. And once made perfect in the same way doesn't mean that Jesus was moved from imperfection to perfection. Instead, what it means is that Jesus actually achieved that purpose for which he was sent, to die on the cross for you and I. That's why he came. And he achieved that purpose in full obedience to God. That's why, verse 9, we read that he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Because he didn't only become the priest that the Old Testament tells us we need, he also became the sacrifice that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed toward all along. He became the one who went before God on our behalf to deal with his judgment and anger towards sinful human beings. And he did that through his own life, given in our place on the cross, so that God's perfect justice, his judgment, was poured out on Jesus and not us. Uh, remember, in Exodus, God said to the Israelites that he couldn't go with them or be in their presence because he might destroy them because of their sin. Well, in Jesus, we have the sacrifice for sin that makes it possible for us to dwell in the presence of God. But not just once, not just for a while until we mess up, but forever. See, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. Jesus is the priest forever. And that means he lives right now, continuing to act on our behalf in the presence of God, so that we too might be in the presence of God for eternity. The source of eternal salvation. He is alive, living right now as our high priest. And you'll notice that it says the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, what does that mean? What's going on there? Well, it means that in our response to Jesus, we follow the model of responding that he has laid out for us in his own life and that he's called for. Firstly, in calling out to the one we need 
to save us from death, trusting that he can and does save us. That is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. We're called to put our faith in him as the only one who can save. But secondly, from that foundation of faith in Jesus, the only one who can save us, we keep living in faith to him, which means obeying him. It's not because what we do earns salvation, but because we trust that our king who gave his life for us knows best and because we want to do what he says. See, Jesus is the mighty king whose rule we live under. He is the judge and king of God's eternal kingdom that we follow. He's earned our allegiance. It belongs to him and we're called to obey our king. But remember, he's also the high priest. And that means he's not only our judge and our ruler, but he's also the one who is able to deal gently with us when we mess this up. So that when we get obeying him wrong, we aren't cast out of God's kingdom, but are drawn back to the grace of God that we see in Jesus, drawn back to repentance or turning away from sin, to renewed faith and obedience in the one who gives eternal salvation. It's our king, he is our high priest. Uh, but for now, back, back to our high-vis shirt and to our hard hats. See, the Christians this was written to were really feeling the pressure to turn from Jesus as their king and high priest, to turning back to the law as the way to be saved, to turning back to what they could accomplish in their own power to be made right with God. And the author of Hebrews is saying that's actually the high-vis way of trying to be made with God, made right with God. It's hoping that what you've accomplished is enough to be able to get in. It's a gamble that you'll get in and that it will all be, be okay. But the problem is you can't pull the wool over God's eyes. See, we have confidence to approach God only through Jesus, the source of eternal salvation and no other. So he is the one through whom you have salvation from sin and it's faith in him as the one who can do this, no other. And so it raises the question for all of us, is my confidence placed in Jesus or in something else? See, the reality is that for most of us here this morning, we know and understand the gospel and have responded to the amazing grace of our God. Uh, but having understood our great need, having turned to Jesus in repentance from sin and, and putting our faith in him as the only one who can save us, uh, well, are you continuing to live in obedience to him? Are you continuing to live trusting in him? Or are there some other priorities sneaking in there that are threatening to take over? Is work starting to shape how you think you should live your life? Or is that friendship circle you're part of at work, or maybe even part of at school that reckons Christians are losers? Is that shaping how you think you should live your life? Are your priorities being shaped by money or by what money can get you? Maybe a house or a car or security? But when you stand before God, those things are actually not going to count for anything. It's Christ alone. It's where our confidence is, where our hope is. Does your life reflect that confidence or does it reflect the confidence of the world around us that says we can ignore Christ because we think the things of this world offer more than he can? Remember, the world is perishing, but Christ is eternal and we can't forget that. Now, on the flip side, you might be sitting there and just realising all the ways you've let Jesus down this year or this month or this week, and maybe you just kind of want to hide from him under a rock. Maybe that's what you're feeling right now. Um, if that's you, remember that Jesus is your gentle high priest. Not only that, he's the high priest who has already dealt with your sin. Your sin does not outweigh his sacrifice. 
and it never can. He is your gentle high priest. He doesn't want you to hide from him in your weakness, but to draw near to him with your weakness on display because he deals with it, not you. He loves you. He wants you with him. So turn to him in your great need. He is your confidence to stand before God, your only confidence that your sin has been dealt with. And he wants you to have that confidence. See, this is how God has loved you. It's not a lie. It's not what you can do, but what Christ has already done on your behalf as your king, as your high priest. So whichever way you lean this morning, Jesus is your king, he is your high priest, and he wants you with him. Now, are you leaning into a high-vis salvation of being content to just try to get in with God because you reckon you might be able to blend in or look like you belong there? Or are you seeking to live under his rule, trusting that he's the only one who can save you, living in obedience to him because you really think that Jesus is the only way? In God's great mercy, has made it possible for us to come before him with confidence. And it's not because we can clothe ourselves with our own achievements or with our good deeds, but because Jesus has done what we can't. He's achieved what we can't, succeeded where we fail. He's become the source of eternal salvation for all. So how's that going, following him? Don't ignore your king. Don't try to hide from the high priest you need, but turn to him in your great need. Well, it's to him that I'm going to lead us uh, in, in talking to now in prayer, asking that he would help us live lives of faithful obedience to the one who has poured himself out for us, to the one who loves us. So let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus, for our authentic high priest, for our high priest that excels beyond all others, for our high priest who is the source of eternal salvation. Thank you that it's not what we can do that makes us right with you, Lord, but it's what Jesus has already done on our behalf. We pray that you would help us all to wake up each day, renewing our trust in him, looking to him in all things. We pray that you would help us to be a church that encourages one another to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. You would help us to love one another this way. Father, we praise you that we can have confidence to approach you, that we can have confidence to call ourselves your children, to say that we are loved by you, Lord, all because of your son, Jesus, the source of eternal salvation. Amen.